and makes special promises to Abraham and says, okay, so it's from Eve now to you, and this, you're going to be this, this unique family that I'm going to be working through. And then God works through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then he rescues, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he rescues that, that, that family that's become a nation now. We know the nation of, of Israel. God rescues them uh, out, of, out of Egypt and then, and God does that through a man named, named Moses, and they wander in the uh, wilderness. And then last Sunday, we got to see God keeping this promise of giving them a land. And so they move into this land that's sometimes referred to as the promised land. And it's truth and advertising. It's, it's the land that was promised. That, that's what it means. God said, I have this land for you. And, uh, and last week, we got to see in the book of Joshua uh, them moving into that promised land. Well, what's, what's next? You just heard the text from CO in, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. And uh, we're going to tackle, we're going to use that as a, a launching pad in a sense, uh, but we're going to tackle the, 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 a pretty big chapter of the nation of Israel. And it's both the kingdom and the exile of the nation of, of Israel. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you have your Bible open there, uh, what, what you'll see in those first nine verses is that Samuel is upset with the request that he gets from Israel. And the indication is that God is upset as well. And you say, why? Like, wh why are they upset? You know, they're, 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 they're asking for a king. What is that that upsets Samuel and, and the Lord? And if you notice, the, the word Lord is in uh, all capitals, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That, that's an indication that it's, it's this, this Hebrew word Yahweh. And it's uh, referring to or referencing the promise-keeping God, Jehovah. And so Samuel is in conversation with Jehovah and they're, they're upset about this request that the people want a king. And it's a fitting subject because I know a lot of us have been thinking about royalty uh, over the last 10 days. Um, Queen, Queen Elizabeth uh, died about 10 days ago and uh, it has kind of captivated the world. Her, her funeral is tomorrow and uh, the predictions are that it'll be the most watched event in the history of the world that more people will watch um, Queen Elizabeth's funeral than anything else. And um, not, not to spend a lot of time on this, but you know, it's, it's quite a, uh, an amazing situation, the way that uh, things work there in, in Britain. And uh, Queen Elizabeth functioned as the, the head of the Church of England. That's part of, part of her responsibilities. And she was not super public with her faith, uh, but all indications are that she had a pretty robust uh, walk, walk with Jesus. I saw a quote from one of her speeches from a few years ago, and this is what she said in one of, one of her addresses. She said, to many of us, our beliefs are of fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's word and his example. And she has a, a pretty, pretty strong track record in her role uh, with the Church of England. And it's, a, it's something to celebrate, to, to look at, a, at, a, at a, a ruler, a queen, someone who served that long and did it with quite a bit of integrity and quite a bit of, uh, of, uh, of humility. So it's a beautiful thing to see a ruler function the way that Queen Elizabeth functioned. But, but back here to, to 1 Samuel chapter 8, Back to this conversation between Samuel and Yahweh about the nation of Israel. Why are they upset? Are they upset because Israel wanted a king? 
Well, well, no, that, that does not seem to be the problem. If you were to rewind a little bit, you would find out that there's indicators all along the way in the history of Israel that a king was going to be part of the future. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 is just one of the examples where the Lord is interacting with the people of Israel. And he says, there, there's, gonna, there's a day when a king's coming. There's a day when you'll, when you'll have a king. So the problem does not appear, there's other passages too, but the problem does not appear to be that they want a king. So why does it bother them so much? Why does it bother Samuel? Why does it bother Yahweh? Well, it's not that they wanted a king. It's the reason that they wanted a king. Now, now this could be a rabbit trail, but do you know how often God is gracious to you by not giving you what you ask for? Because of the reasons that you're asking for it. There's a passage in the New Testament, James chapter 4, and James says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You know, when we get a prayer denied, when we ask God for help or we ask God for something and we get, and the answer is no, it, it can be quite upsetting. But the Bible does invite us into some considerations that there might be a few reasons why the answer to that prayer was no. And one of those possibilities is that your reasons, that what you wanted wasn't the problem, but it's the reasons that you wanted it. And it sure seems to be the situation here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that it's not the problem of a king. This was part of the picture all along the way. The problem is the reason that they wanted a king. They clearly want a king instead of God, rather than a king under God. And so as they, as they talk about this situation, they, they look and they see Samuel, and Samuel has served Israel well. He is uh, both a, a prophet and a priest. And then he has these children that I, you know, would logically would follow in his, in his role, but his kids are a mess. And so the nation takes this as an opportunity to say, there's no one to pass it on to. Your, your, your kids aren't in the place to do it. We want a king. We, we want a king like all the other nations have. Give us a king like that. This idea of them wanting a king instead of God rather than a king under God. You know, if you remember back in the, in the first chapters of the Bible, when God creates the world and he creates Adam and Eve and he creates a perfect situation where they're walking in perfect communion with God, the, the image there is that they are co-heirs. They are, they are co-regents. That God has put Adam and Eve in this role of ruling over the earth, but they rule over the earth under the God of heaven. They, they are submitted to the God of heaven, and then their rule will actually bless the world. Adam and Eve choose to do their own thing, and instead of submitting themselves to God, they choose in rebellion to do, to do it their way. And that is what brings sin into the world and harms and damages all of those relationships. Well, here we are again. The nation of Israel has been brought into the promised land. And God has said, I, I, I've, I've preserved this land for you. I, I drew this land. I gave you boundaries. Like, this is yours. I want you here. And now it's time for the king. And what do they want? They want a king for their own purposes. They don't want a king under Jehovah. They want a king instead of Jehovah. And so God says, okay, you can have your king. You see in, in verse 9, he says, tell them, he says to Samuel, tell them they can have their king. But I also want you to warn them. 
I want you to give him one last chance. I want you to tell him that this is what's going to happen if you do it. Well, not a shocker at all. Israel does not listen to Samuel's warning from God, and they get the king. They get the king that they want, and I think you could say they get the king that they deserve. Uh, the rejection of, of God is referenced in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 8. It says, according to all the deeds that they have done, this is Yahweh talking, Jehovah talking, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God says to, to Samuel, look, Samuel, don't take it personally. Do not, do not take this personally. It feels like they're rejecting you, but they're, they, they're rejecting me. And they've been doing it for a long time. It's kind of their mode of operation. It's what they do. It's, it's how their hearts are bent. So don't take it personally. It's actually a rejection of me. And then in the next chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, you see the selection of a king named Saul, and then you see the anointing of the king. But I want to just at least invite you into God's kindness. God's kindness in the face of, uh, of Israel's rebellious attitude. So just back up a little bit more with me. The book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we, we have a situation where the nation of Israel has gotten stuck in Egypt, and they are functioning as slaves. Uh, they are under the thumb of Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and they can't get out of there. And so they, they are stuck. They, the Pharaoh uh, loves having the free labor. And yet God intervenes and he rescues them from Egypt. He rescues them from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, and he, he preserves his people. In the book of Joshua, we saw this conquest. We saw the fact that God had said, I have this land for you, and it's got certain borders, and I want you to fill that land. It was promised to you a long time ago, and they get it. They receive this land. There's hiccups along the way. There's all kinds of ways in which God is inviting them to recognize that there's these times where they're not living in line with his good design, but they get the promised land. They, they move in. Then you come to the book of Judges, and the book of Judges, it is, it is absolute chaos. In the beginning of the book of Judges, we find out that Joshua dies. So God taps Moses on the shoulder. Moses goes to Egypt, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. Then Moses dies. Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and then Joshua dies. The, the next chapter is a total mess. They literally have no idea what they're doing. And that book is called the book of Judges because God keeps raising up individuals, men and women, to serve as judges of the nation of Israel, to give them some sort of rebuke, some sort of direction, some sort of wisdom. And again, the nation of Israel rarely listens to them. Uh, there's a phrase that we find in the book of Judges that a lot of scholars would say is kind of the best description of the book of Judges. And that is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Like that is the, the most helpful phrase to define what the book of Judges is revealing to us. Everybody just did whatever they wanted. Everybody just ran around doing whatever they wanted. But guess what? That phrase shows up two times in the book of Judges. Both times that that phrase shows up, there's a phrase in front of it. And you know what that phrase is? So the second phrase is, everyone did what was right in their own, their own eyes. But the first phrase is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, in the book of Judges, they've already rejected Jehovah. They've already rejected their heavenly king. They're already doing whatever they want. And the writer of, Judge, of Judges says there was no king, and so the people just were a mess. The people were just doing whatever they want. 
Well, God has some invitations for them. They reject all of those invitations. As we saw here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they want their own kind of king. And so you get to 1 Samuel, and we have kind of a, a false start. Uh, they get a king, but this really wasn't the way that God was seeing this unfold. It's not the kind of king that God wanted them to have or wanted them to choose. And so they get a king named Saul. And he's, he's not a, a, an absolute 100% total train wreck, but it's not good. He, he starts off good, but it doesn't end good. He, 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 gets, he gets sideways, and it's, it's kind of helpful to think of like it as a false start. Like, this is the first king? This is the first king of God's people? Come on! And it, and it just doesn't work out. But along the way, even while Saul is still reigning as king, God identifies the kind of king that, that he actually wants. And it's a, a teenager at that time. And his name is, is David. And David is anointed by Samuel to, be, to become the king. And now there's a timeline, and David's rise to king is complicated, and it, it takes a lot longer than probably any of us would want to wait. But when God looks at David, God actually says that David is a man after my own heart. That when God sees David, he says, this is the kind of king this is the kind of king that my people should have. This is the kind of king that my people should want. A man after my own heart. Now, if you've read uh, chunks of the Old Testament, especially about David, you might be a little confused right now because David was a mess. D David had all kinds of hiccups and tragedies and, and, and huge mistakes and tragic, wicked uh, decisions. His resume is a mess. But you know what else David had? David had kind of this ongoing willingness to own his mistakes and then turn back to the God of heaven. He, he has this pattern, this willingness, you might say this humility to actually look and recognize that, that he raced after the wrong thing, that he chased after the wrong thing. And when it was brought to his attention, he, he actually had this pattern of, of owning it. Of as, when he saw it, it was like, oh my word, I did do that. Oh my goodness, like I have, I have wronged this person and I've wronged the God of heaven. And he runs to God and he asks God forgiveness. You know, the largest book in the Bible is this book called Psalms. And the majority of those Psalms are penned by David. They're written by David. And they are, they are this crazy exploration of the range of emotions that we experience in this life. And some of those psalms are psalms of lament about the brokenness of himself, about the brokenness of his nation. And sometimes there's this aggressive language towards the God of heaven where he's frustrated with how God's letting things unfold. Sometimes there's frustrated language at himself and the way that he's choosing to live his own life, the decisions that he's made. But if you're familiar with the pattern of the Psalms, it is not uncommon at all. It's actually the most common thing that these Psalms have a shift they have a pivot kind of in the middle of the psalm. And the first half of the psalm is a psalm of, of brokenness or sorrow or failure. And then the second half of the psalm is this turning, this trusting, this recognition that as bad as that is, there's a God, as we read this morning in our liturgy, who will actually put our sins as far as the east is from the west. We have a God who will actually forgive us and not treat us as our sins deserve. And so while David is a mess, 
One of the reasons why the Lord of heaven looks at David and says he's a man after my own heart is because David actually owned his brokenness. And you might think you're acing the test. You might think that, man, if, if this was a horizontal competition, like I'm the most holy person in this room. Well, guess what? That is not what defines a person who's after God's own heart. A person who's after God's own heart is one who actually has the humility to recognize the parts of their life that are broken, the parts of their life that are bent away from God, the parts of their life that are in ongoing rebellion, and admit those and recognize that it's not a horizontal competition. It's a recognition that none of us have lived a life that is worthy of the God of heaven. None of us have lived a perfectly holy life. And it seems like David, when it was brought to his attention, was willing to own that. And David's reign was very successful. You know, they wrote songs about David. You know what, you know what one of them was? It, it basically says this. Yeah, when, when, when Saul goes to war, Saul kills by the thousands. But when David goes to war, David kills by the ten thousands. Yeah, how, how would you like a song like that written about you? It's like, you think Saul killed a lot of people. Check out how many people David killed. And everybody applauds. It's like, it's the mark of, of honor. They killed, he killed by the ten thousands. Killed so many people. And yet, the, these were battles uh, with the enemies of the people of God. And it's a different time and a different context. And it's a, a little complicated to understand sometimes. But David's reign was successful as he was fulfilling this role of establishing God's people the nation of Israel. David, he's anointed young. His ascension is really complicated, but he's successful in conquering his enemies. And the nation of Israel becomes powerful and respected, and it becomes a, a very, very wealthy nation. Well, God has a unique relationship with David, and he makes a promise with David, makes a covenant with David. And it's in line with all of these other covenants as God has made promises to people along the way when he stops and he makes a promise with David, it dovetails with these other promises. And so it's getting more specific. Abraham was a whole family. Now David, it says, it's going to be your, your son is going to reign on the throne forever. So God comes along David and says, this is a man after my own heart. And then he makes a promise to David and he says, your son is going to reign on the throne forever. Pretty incredible. You read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Well, after again, some complicated stuff, some tragic mistakes, some wicked mistakes, uh, David has a son and he names that son Solomon. Boy, could this be the one? David's son is going to reign on the throne forever? Could this be the one? David, is, he's in the line of Eve. He's in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all the way down. He, he's, he's in the right lineage. And now God's made a promise to him about his own son. Now he's actually had a son. Could Solomon be the one? Could Solomon be the one that they've waited for? Well, you get into 1 Kings and Solomon comes to power. Solomon becomes the king. And this is like the glory. This is like the season of glory for the nation of Israel. The truth, the beauty, the goodness of Yahweh, it is all on display. The whole world looks at the nation of Israel with honor and respect. Rulers from all over the place are traveling to come and see Solomon and to receive Solomon's wisdom, to get counsel from him. They, they are on the top of the hill. They are a light to the nations. They are being a blessing 
to the world. These are promises that were hinted at or given to Abraham years and years and years ago. He's the son of David. God just said the son of David's going to rule on the throne forever. So we got God's people in God's place. Their enemies are conquered. They're enjoying blessing under God's king. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the culmination of all of those promises. Maybe this is the ending point where the glory and the bliss of being in the presence of God is actually restored. Well, maybe, and maybe not. Solomon uh, ends up getting pretty messy. And so if we just traced the rise of God's people, there is a pretty rapid fall of God's people. I mean, Solomon does some pretty incredible things. He writes the, the Proverbs, thousands of them. Uh, he builds an incredible temple that is just like one of the wonders of the world. It's incredible. And that temple was built for one thing, for the worship of the God of Israel. Phenomenal. But he also did some pretty sad things. He gets really confused. Uh, he begins to lose trust in the God of Israel. And he starts to do his own thing. By the end of Solomon's life, it seems like he's doing what is right in his own eyes. Solomon was given an incredible amount of, of wisdom, and that is such a good thing. But look, Solomon's life is a good invitation to remember that there's no autopilot in, in walking with the God of heaven. That's not how, that's not how it works. It, it's a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong dependence upon, on, upon God, trusting him, letting him make your path straight. And that's not what happened with Solomon. He got pretty messed up. So Solomon's reign has a mixed record, but his trajectory is in the wrong direction and his legacy ends up being a train wreck. His legacy is a mess. His sons, man, for, for Israel, it is all downhill from here. It, it is all downhill from here. Life after Solomon, if you went to 1 Kings chapter 12 through 2 Kings, um, boy, there's a scholar named Vaughn Roberts, and he says life after Solomon was disobedience, division, and decline. That, that's what follows Solomon. So just think if you're, if you're one of the people who has been like aware of these promises that God has made to this unique family, this, this, this family has now become a nation, the nation of Israel, and you've been longing for these promises to be experienced in full. And now here you go, you got the son of David on the throne and Israel's on the top of the mountain. They have their temple, they have wealth, they could have peace. There's all kinds of things in place. And it all just starts slipping away. And it becomes a total mess. Uh, the kingdom splits into two. You end up with the northern kingdom, which is often referred to as Israel. And then you end up with the southern kingdom, which is also uh, often referred to as Judah. And the, the northern kingdom, in short order, is wiped out. And they're, they're gone. And then not long after that, uh, the, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, they get, they get thrown into captivity too. And it, it just all crumbles so fast. I mean, a good example is this. In 1 Kings chapter 12, the, the, we're talking about Solomon's kids, his offspring. In, in, in 1 Kings chapter 12, right after Solomon, they get nervous about the people. And what are the people going to do? And are the people going to run off and, 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 and like, it's the northern kingdom worried about the southern kingdom. And you, you know what they do? They make another golden calf. If you are familiar with the story of Israel, they get 
rescued out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Moses is on a mountain meeting with God. God is speaking to Moses and writing down his law for his people. And while Moses is receiving a word from Yahweh on the mountain, the people down at the bottom of the mountain get tired. They lose patience. And they decide, you know what? I don't know what's going on up there. Moses may have died. Let, let's do our own thing. And so they come up with just the great, great idea of making a golden calf that they could worship. And in Exodus 32, do you know what their leaders tell them? See this golden calf? Come, and this is what they say to them. Come, behold your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Plural. Behold your gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Two minutes ago, it was crystal clear that Yahweh's who brought them out of Egypt. Now Moses takes too long on the mountain, and the people immediately are like, ah, oh, let's do something else. Let's make some golden statues. And if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, it's a violation of the first two. That the, like, the Lord should be number one, and then don't make images. It's, it's, a, it's such a mess. But as soon as Solomon's out of the picture, that's exactly what they do again. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, 2 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12, they say almost the exact same phrase. They say, behold your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. <laughs> like, like, that's what you go back to? Of all the options of what you could go back to, that's what you go back to? But it just reveals the fact that they are sideways, that they are a mess. Maybe you can relate. This is such a tendency for us too. It is so easy for us to run back to the old things to run back to the, these things that we maybe somehow get confused and we think that they worked, but man, they didn't work. And it's so tempting to run back to those former idols, to those former things. And it's exactly what they do. It's exactly what we do too. Well, God, in response to all this, he, he, he sent prophets along the way, but now he begins to send just a parade of prophets. And there's prophet after prophet to speak on, on his behalf. Uh, and it's almost never good news when they have uh, something to say. They loudly and they clearly condemn the Israelites. They condemn them for breaking the covenant. They condemn them for, they continually warn them to turn from their sin and turn back to the God of heaven. But the people, like, they never listen to the prophets. I mean, maybe you've heard of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And he had like a decades-long ministry and he had like one convert. Like, no one listened to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, I know it, it, it's unfortunate, but boy, he is such an encouragement to so many pastors. Because we're just like, oh, he only had one. Like, we're not alone. We, you know, we stink at this too. But the people, the people don't listen. They don't listen to him at all. And uh, sometimes they don't listen because life was good. Sometimes they don't listen because they were afraid. Sometimes they don't listen because they were mad. But in the end, guess what? Every single time that they didn't listen, they didn't listen because they didn't want to. They didn't want to. They didn't want to hear what the prophets had to say, even though the prophets stood and said, thus saith the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And the nation of Israel continually rejected what they had to say. Well, God holds them responsible for that. And uh, one of a hundred examples is in Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And you're free to turn there if you want. But this is, this is what Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, 
that's the southern kingdom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Verse six, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So God looks at both of the, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and he says, you, you, I, I've given you all the opportunities in the world. What, what made David a man after God's own heart? That he turned back. When David saw his sin, he repented of his sin. God looks at the nation now and says, I've given you every opportunity in the world. So many opportunities to turn away from this, and you won't do it. So now the, the punishment is coming. Now, now I, I, I will not revoke the punishment. And both of the, the, the two nations now are going to feel the reality of their rebellion. And as you see these, these uh, por portions of the Old Testament unfold, the nation who was miraculously freed from slavery, by the end of the Old Testament, they're back in slavery. And the God of, of heaven, whose, whose name is, is holy, has given his people so many opportunities to turn. So many times he's demonstrated his kindness and his patience and they reject and they reject and they reject. And finally, like in the passage in Amos, he says, I'm not going to revoke the punishment. It's really bad. They are not being much of a light to the nations. But I want you to see that there are whispers of something better. The prophets said really hard things. They, they condemned the people. And if you are familiar with the prophets, um, you know, sometimes our sensibilities of what bad language is, the prophets don't seem to really care too much about what we think of as bad language. Uh, they, they say stark things. Sometimes they say crude things. Uh, and it is an effort to get the attention of the people. And they do not hold back on the reality of the people's rebellion against God. They condemn them for violating their covenant with God. They warn them of coming, coming judgment. Uh, they call them to turn back to the God of heaven. They said very hard things and the judgment they prophesied, it did come. And he, here's, here's, here's what I want to say. The entire Old Testament should demoralize us. By the time you get down to the end of the, end of the history of Israel, which really is Second Chronicles, uh, that, the, the Old Testament's not, not uh, aligned in chronological order. If you get to the end of Second Chronicles, you should be absolutely demoralized. It, 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 it did not work. N none of it worked. Promises from God, laws that God gave them, miracles, a land that he gave them, this lineage that was preserved, a large nation, a rich nation, a respected nation, prophets, priests, kings, judges, all of this stuff that God gave to those people. And it does not appear that any of it worked. It seems to have all failed. No matter what, the nation of Israel couldn't get it together. But what if that's part of the point? Th think, think about the situation. They, they really have no excuses. Sometimes you hear people interact with stuff and they're like, yeah, we failed, but like, we didn't really try that hard. We, like, you know, I didn't really get my best effort. They did. 
You, you know how many times in the Old Testament they had these like recommittal services and they said, now we will obey you. Now we'll obey the word of the Lord. They tried. Do, do you know sometimes people use the excuse of clarity? Well, we failed, but I didn't really know. Like, what was I supposed to do? Have, have you read Leviticus? They, they had so many laws and so many rules and so many details. It's not a problem of clarity. And they were like, their schooling was to memorize it. Like they knew it backwards and forwards. So it can't be effort and it can't be clarity. And then you say, well, we didn't have good leaders. Well, okay, you had some really terrible leaders, but you had really good ones too. And when God talks to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, he says, Samuel, like, don't take it personally. It's not you that they're rejecting. It's me. They've rejected every one of them. Look at how they treated Moses in, in the wilderness. Look, I mean, David got ran out of Israel, out of Jerusalem multiple times. Even if they were a good leader, the people didn't listen. And even their best leaders were admittedly flawed. And so you, you look at all the details and all the situations and none of it worked. By the end of the history of the Old Testament, you say, boy, this is demoralizing. Yeah. All of that effort, all of that clarity, all of those human leaders, they couldn't get the job done. The Old Testament should leave us longing for something better. And right in the middle of all of the bad news that these prophets drop, there are numerous whispers of a future hope. The prophets, while the majority of what they have to say is hard, they are quite confident that God is actually still going to keep all of these promises. There's a, a, a section of the book, um, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts, and I, I want to read uh, a couple sentences, and a few of them will be on the screen behind me. But the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament closes with 2 Chronicles, which ends with the promise that the exile of God's people will soon be over. In one sense, that happens after 538 BC, but it's not the new exodus the prophets spoke of. Listen, spiritually speaking, God's people are still in exile waiting for the Lord to return to them and fulfill all his promises of salvation. God's kingdom still has not come because God's king has not come. But the last of the prophets insists that he will appear, preceded by a messenger. And this is what Malachi chapter 3 says. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. You know, this is followed by 400 years of silence. No more prophets. No more word of the Lord. This is what they are left with, is that it looks terrible because it is terrible. And yet, I will send my messenger talking about John, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. You see, there is one, the promised one. What if he could do for them what they could not do? What if all this activity of the Old Testament, all this human effort, was meant to reveal to us that as hard as we try, we can't get it done? 
We actually need the Lord's king. We actually need the Lord himself. Well, we'll talk about that next week, but this is the good news of the gospel. Because after 400 years of silence, guess what we find out? That this baby's name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. The promised one actually really does show up. All the effort of the Old Testament was not enough. No matter how hard they tried, they could not earn their right standing with God. They needed help. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the, desperate, the help that they desperately needed. To be the one who could actually do what they needed to have done and do it for them. Who could actually come and take their train wreck resume and give them a righteous resume. Give them a resume that is acceptable to God. To live the life that they should have lived. To actually live the life that you and I should live. You see, the same hope that those Old Testament saints looked forward to is the hope that we look back to. And we're invited to recognize that all of our efforts and all of our quote-unquote good deeds, none of them are enough. In a sense, our lives should leave us demoralized. If all I've got is me, boy, I'm in trouble. But the good news of the gospel is that the Lord's King has come. And he actually has come to rescue us in the only way that matters. And that's why every Sunday we end our service with the bread and the cup. Because we want you to come and taste that on your tongue. To taste this reality of a Savior who's came, who came and lived an earthly life on your behalf to bring you to God. If you've run to him in faith, we invite you to come, take this bread and take this cup. If you haven't, man, we invite you to stay where you're at and, and, and come to Christ. There'll be prayers on the screen. There's prayers in the bulletin. Uh, they're just meant to be uh, helps for your conversation that maybe you need to have uh, with the God of heaven. If our service will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this word. We thank you for this good news in the face of really, really bad news. God, I imagine there were quite a few Israelites who thought maybe Solomon was the promised one, who thought maybe he, the son of David, was the one who could actually fix their problems. And God, they probably experienced quite a bit of, of demoralized uh, emotions when they, when they realized that that failed too. God, maybe there's someone in this room, maybe there's a bunch of us in this room who can relate to that. Maybe we thought this was going to be the answer. Maybe we thought this was going to be the solution. Maybe we thought this would finally get us over the hump. God, would you help us to see that it's your grace when all of those false saviors are revealed to be false? Would you help us to cling to this one true savior, this one who was promised to come and who 2,000 years ago really did come and really did live the life that we were supposed to live and then die the death that we deserve to die? We thank you for this good news about Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.